Good morning, my name's Lorraine, and I'll be doing our second Bible reading from Psalm 85. If you're reading from a Pew Bible, that is page 621, or you can follow on the screen behind me. Psalm 85. You showed favour to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, O God, our Saviour, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Thank you, Lorraine. Our friends, before we proceed, how about we just open in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, we do ask you, in your kindness and mercy, that you would prepare our hearts and minds as we hear your word to us this morning. We pray, God, that your word would magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and help us to see with even greater clarity our need for him. And we ask that you do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm someone who likes statistics, uh, especially uh, statistics because they tell a story. They, uh, when, they, when you interpret it, they tell a story of what things will look like. So, um, so, for example, I love census statistics because they tell a story of what our nation was once like, what our nation is like now, and what our nation might look like in the future. So, did you know that in 1911, at our first national census, 96% of our population identified as Christian. It was a time when God was esteemed in the land and churches were a powerful influence for good. But fast forward to our latest census in 2021 and the stats show that only 43.9% of our population now identify as Christian. In fact, only 11% of our population go to any type of church weekly and trends do point that there will be further declines in the years to come. And so why is Christianity in such a decline in our country? Well, firstly, many nominal Christians have realised that they have no actual faith. And so they've ticked no religion on the census. Secondly, the growing influence of secularism in the land. Well, that's convinced many that Christianity no longer has a place in our culture. But the decline is not just due to culture, it's also due to churches. The recent bringing to light of the failings of the broader church, well, that's resulted in many people distrusting the church today. And in the quest to stay relevant to the culture, 
Many churches have instead ended up watering down the very gospel that has the power to save and that has the power to bring true gospel growth. Now, I don't know how you're feeling this morning as you hear all of these sobering stats, but I suspect some of us might be feeling troubled. Um, Perhaps some of us might be feeling discouraged. And we might be questioning, in light of this decline, can we, as Christians, find hope? Now, we need to realise the discouragement we might be experiencing is not new or not unique to our generation of believers. Uh, For this morning, as we turn to the book of Psalms, and Psalm 85 in particular, we'll see that the psalmists and God's people at the time were also experiencing discouragement due to a trying situation that they were facing. Except rather than to remain troubled or to remain discouraged, they found hope. And we'll see how they found hope And it's over three parts in this psalm. Firstly, when we remember God's unfailing love in the past. Secondly, when we trust in God's unfailing love in the present. And thirdly, when we look forward to God's unfailing love in the future. And we'll be looking at these three parts in more detail. So firstly... Hope is found when we remember God's unfailing love in the past. Now, when we're in the midst of trouble, it's very easy to feel consumed by problems, very easy to feel down and downcast and discouraged. And it was during a time of great trouble that Psalm Psalm 85 was written. And what was the trouble that the psalmist was experiencing? Well, it was around the year 538 BC and God's people were back on the land promised to them. After all, they had just spent some time in Babylonian captivity. But the land that they returned to was full of ruins. So imagine coming home and seeing all your houses burnt down on your street in ruins and rubble walking through the neighbourhood and all the roads and the footpaths broken up, walking through the parks and seeing the trees broken down and set on fire and basically coming to what's like a post-apocalyptic scene that you see in movies or a ruinous wasteland. So this is what the people of God were experiencing as they've just come back to the land. But not only that they also experienced troubles with their rebuilding efforts. You see, they wanted to rebuild Jerusalem. They wanted to rebuild the land, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple. But instead, what did the people want to do? They wanted to rebuild their their homes. They were focusing on themselves rather than focusing on what God's people needed, what God wanted. But not just that, they were facing opposition. They were facing opposition from um, many uh, in the land who were not, from Israel. Um, There were even people from Samaria, like the governor of Samaria, who uh, was wanting to raise an army against them. And so so can you imagine, if you were the psalmist right now, you've just come back to this ruined land, you're just facing all this opposition, how would you be feeling? Obviously quite discouraged. but, But what did he do? Well, he looked to the past for hope. 
because he knew that despite the present troubles that they're feeling right now, things were actually far worse when they were in the 70 horrendous years in Babylonian captivity. And he knew that it was only by the mighty and outstretched arm of God that due to his uh, merciful uh, and unfailing love that they'd been brought back to the land uh, through the Persian Empire. Which is why, despite his troubles, the psalmist declares in verse 1, You, Lord, showed favour to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. Now, God hadn't just returned them to the land. He did something even greater. You see, the reason the people were in captivity in the first place was because God had punished them for their sins. For in the years before their captivity, they'd, been, they'd greatly rebelled against God. They gave worship to powerless, absolutely powerless idols like Baal, rather than to worship the one true God who brought them out of Egypt with his mighty and outstretched arm. They lived in hypocrisy with all their uh, uh, religious ceremonies and, and all the things that they were doing, and yet their hearts were far from God. And they ultimately rejected the law of God and his prophets. And instead, what did they choose to do? They chose to do what was right in their own eyes. And so all this was an affront against an absolutely holy and glorious God. And so not only did the people deserve punishment, they deserved to be destroyed by him. But what did God instead do? Well, rather than to wipe them out, rather than to keep them in indefinite punishment and indefinite captivity, he brought them back meaning he chose forgiveness over wrath. He chose unfailing love over anger. He chose wiping out their sins, which is why the psalmist in verses 2 and 3 says, You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. So can you see why the people found hope in remembering the past? Because they had experienced God's unfailing love for them, not only in restoring them physically, in restoring them spiritually. And I suspect we too know how this feels. For how many times have we come to God asking Him, pleading and restore us, God, from our troubles, probably from the troubles we've caused ourselves, and hasn't God come and rescued us? And how many times have, have we, when we come before God, come before his unfailing love, know that he has wiped our sins clean? And what a great God this is as we think back to the past. And what an amazing hope this is. So moving on to my second point. Hope is not only found when we remember the past, it's also found when we trust in his unfailing love in the present. Now, at, that, at, at this point, if you were the psalmist, you'd be like, you'd be absolutely overjoyed, right, of all that God has done. But yet you'd also be conflicted. 
And you'd be conflicted because right now, the problem's still there. The, the land is still in ruins. They're still needing to rebuild. And so, and, and, and so even though he would have been feeling hopeful, there is still a degree of discouragement. And so the psalmist now, he comes to God pleading. So he pleads for restoration again. He pleads for forgiveness again. He pleads for things to be better again, which is why he says in verse 4, Restore us again, God our Saviour, and put away your displeasure toward us. But the psalmist doesn't just stop at pleading. He now ramps it up, really, really ramps it up with audacious questioning. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not a rudeness to his attitude, but it's an impassioned plea. You see, he doesn't know when these present troubles are going to end. He doesn't know when the land is going to be rebuilt. And so, in his impassioned plea, he comes before God and, 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 he, and he asks him, Lord, how much, how much more worse is it going to be this time around if we keep sinning against you, Lord? How much longer are we going to have to suffer right now? We, we know that you brought us back, but are we still going to keep suffering? And God, if we keep sinning like we're currently doing, are we going to end up like Sodom and Gomorrah? Are we going to end up totally wiped out? So you can see why he's feeling this way. Because after all, God has been so gracious, so gracious to him, so gracious to us. And then so he asks in verse 5 and verse 6, Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger throughout all generations? Will, will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? And is this not the same type of questions we're asking of God today, especially in the light of the state of Christianity in this country, in the light of this aggressive secularism? God, are you showing your wrath of abandonment of this nation, as in Romans chapter 1? Are you angry with your church due to all her moral failings? Will you continue to let Christianity decline in this country until we're no more? Will you continue to allow the culture to persecute us out of existence? Perhaps, God, can we even dare to ask that things could go back to how they were in 1911, when our nation joyously esteemed you in the land, when revivals were breaking out all over Melbourne and Sydney, when Christians made up 96% of this great nation? And after audaciously questioning God, the psalmist now comes to the heart of his plea. It's a plea to God's unfailing love. It's a plea to his help. You see, for in remembering God has helped his people in the past, he perhaps now prostrate before God, pleading, but knowing and saying, God, will you save us one more time? And he can say this because he knows, he trusts in God's unfailing love. And so he says in verse 7, 
Show us your unfailing love, Lord. Grant us your salvation. And have we not experienced this too as we cried out to God in the midst of current trouble? Yes, we know he's helped us in the past, but even right now, when we come to him, we're not speaking out into thin air. We're not speaking out to, into an imaginary friend or the flying spaghetti monster as the atheists like to mock us. Rather, we're coming to our heavenly Father for help, even when we've messed up real bad. Because we know he's a Father who dearly loves us, who dearly cares for us, who responds to us graciously. He's a father whose love is as wide as the east is from the west. What an amazing father this is. And so, which is why when we know, when we come before our father, we know we can trust him because we know we'll find his mercy, we'll find his help, we'll find his great deliverance right now. And to my third point, Hope is not only found when we trust in God's unfailing love in the present. It's especially found when we look forward to God's unfailing love in the future. You see, the psalmist didn't end this psalm with pleas for help. He didn't end this psalm feeling downcast. He didn't end it feeling discouraged. He ended it with an expectant hope of the future. He ended it believing that better things were yet to come for all of God's people. Now, where did he get such a hope from? Well, to answer this, we need to look at the first part of verse 8, which says, I will listen to what... God the Lord says. You see, whatever hope we have doesn't come from what we think or what we feel or what we do. It comes from God alone. And the psalmist knew this. And the psalmist, in looking forward to a better future, was perhaps hoping that God would help the people rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple to look like its former glory in Solomon's time. It was perhaps hoping that God would help the people and set up a mighty and a godly king to rule over them, to teach them his ways like in King David's time. He was perhaps hoping that God would even help them become such a powerful nation, more powerful than the Persians who delivered them, more powerful, of course, than the Babylonians who took them into captivity so that they would never, ever be conquered again. And, and is this not how we may think too, in light of all that's happening in our land right now, and when we look at all the godlessness in our land that we would love to see this nation exalting God. We would perhaps love to see that at the very next census, 100% of this population are ticking that they are a Christian, that they are born again, that they know God. But God had an even better plan. 
And it was in the form of a promise given. And what did God promise? A time when God's peace would reign throughout the earth. A time when everyone would be loved by God and they would love God in return. And as a result, they would stop sinning against Him. They would stop sinning against each other. It was a time better than the Garden of Eden because God's presence would be manifest in the land, which is why the psalmist says in verses 8 and 9, I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in the land. You see, what God had promised was even better than the best promised land on earth. He promised heaven. He promised that we'll be in his loving presence forever. And do you know what this heavenly realm, this presence will feel like? It'll be like living in a right relationship with God and each other. Being filled with love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace and everything good. Which is why... Verse 10 uh, describes as a love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. It will be like dwelling with all of God's people from every tribe, nation, and tongue together under his righteous rule, which is why verse 11 describes it as faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. It will be like having an abundance of everything good in our possession, not having lack of anything, where the memory of a ruinous wasteland would no longer exist, which verse 12 describes as the Lord will indeed give what is good, and the land will yield its harvest. It will be like having a caring shepherd, It would be like having a gracious saviour, a wonderful king walking beside us in the promised land. Which verse 13 says, righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. And friends, isn't this an amazing picture of a glorious future ahead for all of God's people, including us this morning. And so the question is, when... When will this glorious future come about? Now, you see, whilst the psalmist was looking forward to all that was going to happen in a future date, for us, we can say with confidence, absolute confidence, it began. You see, it began when the second person of the Holy Trinity came down to earth, took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. And he restored our relationship with God when the unfailing love and justice of God met on him as he hung on a cross, as he died for our sins, and as he rose again in glory on the third day, an event that turned the entire world upside down. And who is this person, you may ask? Well, of course, we all know he is Jesus, 
of Nazareth, our Messiah, of course. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And it is through this very Jesus that we, as a church, right now have a taste of this glorious future, right now, right here. A taste when we experience all manner of spiritual blessings in Christ. When we experience beautiful fellowship right now here in this room, when we experience beautiful fellowship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, but not just here, across churches all over our nation, across the world. A taste when we experience sweet, sweet communion with our beautiful Savior, when we spend time with Him in His Word, when we spend time in prayer. And ultimately, we'll experience this glorious future in all, in all of its fullness. And it will be not just when we die. It will be when He comes back again. You see, our God, our magnificent God, is going to give us a new heaven and a new earth where we will receive grace after grace after grace in His presence where we will live in perfect relationship with Him and each other in an Eden that's greater than any Eden we've ever seen. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What an amazing God this is. What amazing promises this is. And it will come to pass. And so what does this all mean for us today in light of the decline of Christianity, in light of all that we're seeing out there. After all, our current situation and reality says that as soon as we walk out these doors, that week ahead and the months ahead, we'll continue to see and face attacks in the media and social media for simply stating that we're Christian, that we'll continue to face ostracization socially, whether we're at work, whether we're at school, wherever we are. We might be left out and simply because we identify with Christ. That sadly our children will endure bullying and, and suffering in school because they identify as Christians and they belong to Christian families. Where we'll continue to witness politicians continually trying to implement insidious laws, trying to remove the rights of churches, of schools, of Christian organizations. As we see in advance, uh, the advancement of an ag aggressive secularism in our culture that's causing all sorts of untold damage. We're seeing the violence on our streets. We're seeing the disregard for law. We're seeing the dishonor to God, blatant disregard for God. And, and it feels sometimes that all hope is lost. But rather than feeling that all hope is lost, than feeling that we want to be, that we're discouraged, that we want to crawl into a hole, that we want to uh, go find a, a piece of land somewhere far out in the country that we want to build an underground bunker rather than feeling all that. What this psalm tells us today, what this psalm speaks so powerfully today is to say that no matter how troubled our lives are, we have the greatest hope in the world that no one else has. You see, this amazing hope that we have in Christ that we've heard this morning should make us the most hopeful people around, right? This is, this is so amazing. And, and so in light of all we've heard, my prayer 
is that we wouldn't leave this place afraid. We wouldn't leave this place fearful. We wouldn't leave this place feeling, oh, we're this persecuted minority. No, we leave this place with joy, with hope. And you see, unlike the psalmist who was so hopeful when he finished the psalm, we are even more hopeful because when we look back to the past, we, we see God sending his son into the world to save us from our sins, to say it is wiped clean through his cross and his resurrection. When we trust in God's unfailing love in the present, we see Jesus who right now is caring for his church, who the same Jesus who promised to build his church on a rock, and he said even the gates of hell will not overcome it. And when we look forward to God's unfailing love in the future, we, what we look forward to is a glorious future that he's prepared for us, not just of being in heaven when we die, a glorious future of being with him in resurrected bodies in the new heaven, in the new earth, reigning with him forever, this glorious God in the true promised land. So church, if this isn't hope, I don't know what is, because it is such an amazing truth and I pray that it doesn't just come to our minds this morning, that, but we really feel this in our hearts because we have the greatest Savior in the world. And praise, praise Christ. Amen? Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for teaching us this morning about your wonderful truth, that we have an amazing hope indeed, and it's through your unfailing love in Christ. So help us, Lord, not just to be hearers of this wonderful truth, but help us live this out every day in light of your glory. And we pray all this in the most awesome name of Jesus. Amen.